0: Welcome back to the Bad Chinese Teacher podcast. This is episode 4. Yay, we made it through the first week. We survived. Thank you to everyone who listened to the first 3 episodes and subscribed and shared with their friends and followed and all of those things. I am so so grateful. Thank you so much for um yeah, just being so supportive and listening to me drone out about all the things that I care about in life. Um yeah, just really really grateful. Uh, if you haven't already, uh it'd be great if you leave 5-star uh, rating on this podcast and or leave a review. The review part is actually really, really helpful for me um, so I know what you liked and that we can do more of that sort of thing um, as time goes on. I'm actually really curious as to all the people who are listening to this podcast. Uh, I'd love to know who you are just because it helps me shape my content, helps me kind of figure out um, who's listening and hey, you never know, maybe one of these days I'd love to bring some of you on um, to guest and jump behind the mic to share some of your stories because that's what this podcast is all about it's about sharing stories and I'm sure many of you have some of those tucked away in the backs of your brain that just need a platform to be shared on so thank you again so much I really really appreciate all of you if you haven't followed our socials yet you can keep up with us at uh, on Instagram at bad Chinese teacher over there you can go on Twitter and follow us at bad Chinese pod and on Facebook we are the bad Chinese teacher podcast just look it up over there um, on those platforms I will post episode highlights um, just little clips from each each episode so that you can share with your friends and family and people you think who might be interested. So, um, yeah thanks. Okay, so the day before I announced that this podcast was happening, I randomly came across this video on Facebook. It was posted publicly by someone who I actually didn't know. It just came up randomly. This is a one-minute video of Andrew Yang talking about Chinese school. When I saw this, I was like, clearly the Lord wants me to do this podcast. <laughs> um, Andrew Yang, if you all don't know, um, is a Democratic primary presidential candidate for the 2020 U.S. election. Uh, you might know about him because his uh, keystone policy is universal basic income, which he calls the freedom dividend. This is the guy who wants to give every American $1,000 a month. So, um, I've reposted that video on our Facebook page, and I'll also link it in the show notes. Um, so my mentioning him is not in any way like a political endorsement. That's not really what this show is about, but I just didn't think that this video in particular could go ignored. Um, Andrew Yang is this Taiwanese-American political figure, a presidential candidate, and he's talking about what seems to be this somewhat universal experience amongst, uh, Asian Americans who went to weekend language school, Chinese school. Um, the clip itself is only a minute long, like I said, but I feel like everything he says, like every word is something that probably resonates with a lot of Chinese Americans to some degree. So today what we're going to do is we're going to break down that video line by line. And then at the very end, we'll talk a little bit about the goals of Chinese school. Um, why Chinese school tends to have such a bad reputation. Um, and whether or not that bad reputation is something that's necessarily earned. All right, let's go.
1: My parents would bring me to Chinese school, Northern Westchester.
0: Right, so who wants to go to extra classes on the weekends?
1: And I was so bad at it.
0: What's funny is that the first thing that people tend to do when they talk about Chinese school, particularly as adults, is that they will like self-admit that they are or were really bad at Chinese. Just something interesting.
1: And to, in my defense, the teachers were awful because the teachers were all volunteer, volunteer teachers, just like a... You know, Chinese parent um, who had some textbooks.
0: So this is mostly true. Uh, Chinese schools, by and large, are often staffed by volunteers. Uh, some of the larger, more established, better resourced ones uh, will will have paid teachers. Some of them who have actual public school teaching licenses. But by and large, Chinese schools um, are established by families uh, who want to just have a place for their kids to learn Chinese. And so as a result, um, the teachers tend to be volunteers. Uh, just usually, it's like someone's someone's mom um, or, or moms uh, who. Who are teaching the classes. And so um, what's what's important to note here, though, is how ubiquitous Chinese schools tend to be. So given the fact that teachers are volunteers, um, you know, just whoever's mom is available on the weekends to teach, you know, you can basically set up a Chinese school wherever Chinese people tend to reside. Um, and so just as an example, where I live, which is not like, you know, there's not a ton of Chinese people here. Uh, Yale University is right next door, but, you know, it's not as if this is like a, an L.A. or a New York City or anything like that, but in this area alone, there are four Chinese schools. Four, which is like insane if you think about it. The quote-unquote awfulness of the teachers, uh, I think that's a pretty subjective claim, but it's an understandable one, but only given the Really unideal circumstances that Chinese schools are established under as well as like the teaching environment. So like number one, you have teachers who are like not necessarily trained or qualified, um, just really well-meaning moms who want a place for their kids to learn Chinese. It's really not their own fault, but the teachers by and large don't have a lot of training. Um, the kids don't want to be there. So that's a really great place to start. Um, and on top of that, the kids who are usually attending Chinese school are like between the ages of 7 to like 13, which is... I don't know just a really tough play really tough age group to be to be dealing with in the first place man like middle school teachers yo like yeah. Um. So so it's a really tough age group. It's on a Saturday. So like to compound the fact that the kids don't want to be there. Like you're taking extra classes on a Saturday. What were you doing on your Saturday mornings? Right. Probably not like taking classes in a subject you didn't want to even study in the first place. Speaking of which, yeah, the subject that you're studying is a stupid hard language. That's like you know, oh. And then on top of that, there's a language barrier between the the teacher and the student. So like it's just issues compounded on issues, and so it's just such an unideal environment. And then You know so so if you're a kid and you're looking at this and and you don't realize the unidealness of those circumstances it's really it's really easy to just pin it all on the teachers and say man the teachers were terrible um but really it's just a a a combination of a lot of really really unideal things going on it's a really really tough circumstance to be teaching under
1: and then we had this homework that i just never did and there was no accountability at all and so i just go and i just like wouldn't learn anything
0: so I'm actually really curious as to how various Chinese schools keep up with grades slash like accountability. Because in my experience, usually kids are willing to do homework or study for tests for only one real reason. And that is for grades, right? Like, or, or the threat of having bad grades. And so if grades don't really matter, right? I'm assuming that like no Chinese school, like your Chinese school test grades are not going on your college, your, your high school transcript. So if grades don't really matter or count towards anything, then like, Why would anyone try? Right, and and I'm saying that as a teacher who like tries so hard to get kids to care about stuff, but like you know, I mean, as 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 human beings, right? If you just remember back to your student days, if something wasn't graded, like usually people just wouldn't really care about it. So um, Chinese schools don't have grades usually, or if they do, they're not really anything that counts towards anything consequential. You know, that being like you know your college application or whatever. Um, so I went back and I looked at a bunch of like handbooks and student guides of Chinese schools in my area. And it seems like in lieu of grades, or I mean, some of them had grades, but, but generally speaking, they had instead of grades, um, this like set of expectations, um, whether it's in the form of a student contracts. And so these expectations generally kind of revolve around the themes of like, they expect students to try (laughs) to put forth effort, um, to be disciplined, uh, to show respect. It's actually really funny, um. Just like I, one of the, one of the, one of the Chinese schools in my area has this really cute, really cute acronym called READ, which stands for respect, enthusiasm, ability, and discipline. Um, which then in turn, I'm just quoting them, makes a better person, which I don't think anyone would disagree with that, but I just thought it was really, really cute, but also kind of depressing because like when you look at the student contract or the handbook, they kind of like outline what respect is, um, what enthusiasm looks like and what you know, reaching to your best ability and being disciplined looks like, I'm just looking at this and I'm just like, um, yeah, these are great and all, but like to have no no teeth behind that is a pretty bold gamble, right? You basically, you're basically trusting preteens to look at this and like agree with the moral constructs of something that the teachers are like, you should value this because it's important. Um, not to say that 12 year olds are not capable of understanding that, but it's a pretty bold gamble in my opinion. Um, Some other places will just say that if you don't keep up with these expectations or if you like misbehave or like break the rules or are disrespectful, they'll just kick you out, which like... To be honest, might be good news to some kids. Um, other places will give like prizes, but like, have you ever tried to bribe a preteen? Like, w- there is literally nothing, nothing in this like like you can't like give candy or whatever. It's really hard to bribe a preteen, um, so it's really hard to just kind of reinforce these kind of vague principles if there are no, you know, like if they're not working towards like a grade or something consequential. I mean, obviously, the 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 thing that I'm missing here is like if you do badly in Chinese. school, I don't know, maybe your parents will get mad at you. But like, overall, there, it's really hard to kind of have much accountability in a place like Chinese school, because there's really, um, whether you do poorly or do your best seems to really have no real bearing on, you know, your real life, so to speak. That being said, it's not as if like these, these places don't give homework or don't have tests. And, and so there's homework, which actually in the construct of a Chinese school is really important and necessary, especially if kids are going, only going to Chinese school one time a week, uh, especially for something like language. Language is something that's like, you know, I, I I'll always liken it to practicing an instrument. Like you have to engage with it every day. So if you're only engaged in Chinese school once a week for like maybe an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, right? Like you learn for an hour and then like the remaining six days of the week you're just backsliding so homework I actually would agree with the fact that it's super important Um, the challenge obviously then is like enforcing it and keeping students accountable Um, just as an example I do classes with my sixth graders three times a week and it is so hard to keep keep them up for the remaining four days of the week that they're not in classes because usually what happens with sixth graders is that like they're the days that they're not in class they just forget that Chinese as a language exists and it's so hard to pull them back so imagine having Chinese school that's like one time a week like you unless there is consistent reinforcement at home via homework or practice it's just so hard to retain anything it's such a losing battle so homework or consistent structured practice is absolutely necessary but like again if there's no grades um, or if your only threat is like if you don't do homework you get kicked out there's no way to enforce it
1: and uh, other kids would work harder than I did so they kept moving up grades and I kept getting left back I was in like permanent third grade in Chinese school?
0: Yeah, so this is a killer. Um, one thing that I've learned through teaching is that the thing that demotivates kids the most is not necessarily the threat of punishment, um, but it's feeling dumb. Uh, that That is the ultimate killer for kids who are learning anything. If you want to turn a kid off to anything, just make them feel stupid about something. Um actually, let's actually, can we talk a little bit about, you know, just why Chinese American kids hate learning Chinese as a concept, like putting Chinese school aside for a bit. Can we just talk a little bit about why Chinese American kids, a lot of Chinese American kids seem to be so averse to the idea of learning Chinese in the first place. So on the one hand, it's like, why do I have to learn Chinese? Literally no one in my school, none of my friends have to learn Chinese. All my friends are having fun on Saturdays. And what am I doing? Why do I have to do all this other stuff that I don't want to do while my friends get to do what they want? And you could like easily apply this to like, not just Chinese school, but like extra tutoring or like piano lessons or ice skating lessons or anything, any like fun extracurricular activity that Asian parents will like force kids to do. So there is this sense of like, no one else has to do this why do i have to do this um and so that as a base circumstance is just really really unfortunate so um yeah if you want to breed bitterness within a kid you can you can def- you should definitely do that but on the other hand i'm sure that every chinese kid will eventually get to the point where they're thinking you know chinese in particular is something that i should know right like my parents speak it to me i can understand it really easily um or even if that they might think to themselves eh, it's like something something that i kind of know but i know badly. I think that's something that like a lot of Chinese kids kind of can will admit to at some point that their Chinese is like existent but it's not good. And if you're at a place where like a certain skill the only thing you can say about it is that like you're not good at it, that's not going to make you feel good, right? And so I think it's really important as we're looking at what motivates or demotivates kids to learn Chinese or really anything, I think it's really important to not underestimate how much it hurts a kid for them to feel stupid about something and so I think Andrew Yang when he's saying this like it it hurts my heart right like because he's like you can and I'm sure this is a shared experience for a lot of people that like you see kids who are just I don't know like either either they're really personally invested in learning Chinese I doubt that but like just kids who are very very sharp or bright or maybe just have a lot of reinforcement at home they're zooming up ahead and you who are like you know not working as hard or just not as quick you are left in quote-unquote permanent third grade in Chinese school man like that's so rough like that's you know, you can't motivate a kid by saying, hey, look at look at so-and-so who's so far ahead. You're so dumb. Like, why don't you catch up to them? Like, that's just going to make them feel worse. And I think, you know, just if you have a child in your life, there is, it's so important to, it's important for them to know the reality of where they stand and for them to know the the, the, the value of working hard. But just don't underestimate how much it hurts a child to, for them to feel dumb about something.
1: I remember there was this uh, exercise where you have to write a four-sentence sentence conversation between two people and my vocabulary was so basic and stupid that uh, that I literally wrote something like um, like why yeah wa it was like I want to hit you please don't hit me. I want to hit you, and then the fourth sentence was literally just the word "hit" hit 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 over and over again.
0: Right. So this is obviously Newbery Medal award-winning stuff, but let's let's have a little fun with this, shall we? So the sentences that Andrew wrote here was "我要打你，不要打我，我要打你," 我要打你, and the fourth line is just 打,打,打,打,打,打. Um, but he uses the word "yao" a lot, and we'll actually get to what "yao" means in a bit. But "yao," um. Is interesting because number one, it has two pronunciations. If it's first tone, it's yao, as in yaoqiu, which means to request, or yao ye, which means to promise. And so, like, I bet most of you heritage speakers did not notice this because I actually didn't. Uh, so, there's one, there's two pronunciations. The first one, not used nearly as often, not nearly as familiar to us, um, but it's first tone. But when it's fourth tone, when it's more commonly used, it's fourth tone. So, it's pronounced yeah which is how andrew is using it here and when it's fortune, it actually means a whole bunch of other things that can literally change the meaning of your sentence unless you have proper context so uh fourth tone yao can mean that you want to do something um, or that you like want something like if it's used with a noun which is what Andrew says here he says dani, I want to hit you per his per his translation um, or you could use it with a noun like bi, I want that pencil uh, so it can use, be used to express desire to do something or for a certain object but it can also mean that you will do something or that you must do something so... In his sentence, he could have been saying 我要打你, I am going to hit you. Not necessarily that like I want, although the two probably are probably one and the same, but it could have meant I am going to hit you, or even that I must hit you, 我要打你. Consider the sentence 我要去中文学校, here 我 means I, and 去中文学校 means go to Chinese school. So does 要 here mean that you want to go, that you will go, or that you have to go? 我要去中文學校, which one of it is it, right? Because without context, that sentence could mean three totally different things. So I bring all of that up just to say that Andrew's sentence here is actually pretty complex because the first part of the sentence, dani could be, I want to hit you, like he says, or I'm going to hit you, like as if it were a threat. Um, but the second part of the sentence, he says, wo uses a completely different definition of yao, which is the should or like the have to meaning. Um, and when it's used with a bu, which is a, like a negation word to not do something, um, it then means that uh, it means a command to to don't do something so don't hit me so I'm sure that those of you who are not heritage speakers are like looking at this who are just beginning to learn Chinese are looking at this and you're like whoa there's so much how do you even keep up which uh, agreed this is, this is part of the reason why I think Chinese can be so unreasonable sometimes um, but I bring this up because it points to the reason why heritage speakers have this perceived unfair leg up on like non heritage learners because of the most basic stuff in Chinese, right? Even a word like yao, which is to want, to to do or to intend to do something, which is such a high frequency word in any language, um, the most basic stuff in Chinese can be so complicated. And so, you know, in lieu of having this instinct as to how to use a word like Yao, a lot of non-heritage learners end up memorizing grammar rules, like memorizing all the different usages of Yao, which like, oof, ouch. I think after a while, in terms of like, you know, heritage speakers having a leg up when it comes to learning grammar, I think that playing field does end up evening out after a while because the advantage of like knowing what sounds right really only extends to what you were used to hearing growing up as a kid because that's like where heritage speakers get their language from. It's, it's purely from like household language. Um, and so that's why like you don't really see heritage speakers who have never taken Chinese classes like, you know, discussing politics in Chinese because generally speaking, they're not using that kind of vocabulary in the household with their parents um especially as like a six-year-old seven-year-old kid which is when a lot of this language acquisition takes place and so not only does that extend to vocabulary but also to grammar right like it's not as if parents are using long more complicated sentences with their like you know their toddler or their their kindergartner so um you know so there is definitely like a point where heritage speakers end up like losing that advantage because um the complexity of what they're learning in Chinese exceeds beyond what they were able to absorb as being natural, naturally acquired language in childhood. So um, this is a phenomenon that definitely took me by surprise when I hit moments when I was learning Chinese, particularly when I was writing, when um, I had to ask people around me, like, you know, I'd write a sentence and be like, I, I don't know if this sounds right, right? In lieu of like actually, you know, studying that much grammar because I wasn't used to studying grammar because I was like skating by on this whole heritage speaker privilege of mine. Um, I had to ask people like, does this sound weird? because I couldn't rely on my instinct anymore. But anyway, given this advantage, right, which, you know, in all reality, despite of what I just said, is a big advantage, um, you can see why Chinese parents would really, really want their kid to put forth the effort to learn because, to be honest, they're already kind of ahead of the curve, right? Why not finish it out?
1: I would just do like, really stupid things in Chinese school because I just didn't care.
0: And there it is, Uh, the phrase that sparks heartbreak in like a million Chinese parents, because if there's something to be said about the ubiquity of Chinese schools, it's how much effort is taken to fund them to staff them um the amount of work that teachers put in in planning lessons because as much as we like you know talk crap about Chinese schools here as much as like Andrew Yang in this one clip is like talking about how awful Chinese school was and how poorly poorly designed it was and how it was pointless blah 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 I'm sure this is a sentiment that a lot of kids shared a lot of adults probably shared um I really don't think it can be overstated um as to how hard Chinese teachers as a whole work. And I'm saying this as a Chinese teacher. What I'm really referring to are like native speaker Chinese teachers. Um, And I say this because there is always going to be this one example of like Chinese teacher overachieverism that I will always put in my mind, that I will always think about. So... um, About a year ago, I joined this Facebook group of Chinese teachers, basically all they're like from all over the all over the globe teaching in all sorts of places, teaching Chinese in all sorts of places. Um, But by and large, I want to say that most of them are Taiwanese because it's on Facebook. Um, But one of them, one teacher posted this picture of this teeny tiny refrigerator Uh, made out of cardboard like it has a little door that opens and shuts right this teeny tiny cardboard and in the teeny tiny cardboard refrigerator she has these little pockets where she had teeny tiny cards uh, with the names of fruits and vegetables and I think this was a lesson on like naming fruits and vegetables so which is like literally like maybe like you spend a couple days on that right it's just straight up vocabulary this teacher goes and builds a teeny tiny refrigerator out of cardboard by hand to teach her students Fruits and vegetables. Right. If it were me, I'd be like, let's just put together some stock images on a PowerPoint and be done with it. Right. Or like, let's put together like a like a like a reading passage that integrates the refrigerator and like that's so high effort. Right? But the thing is, like, something like that, like, imagine the time that it takes. Imagine the kind of thought it takes to, like, say, hmm, I'm going to build a tiny refrigerator out of cardboard for my students, for them to learn apples and oranges, um, because I think that's what keeps them engaged. And then to actually do it, right? That's insane. And so... I really think. I mean, you could argue as to whether or not that's actually an effective way of of delivering a lesson, but to go to that route to be like, I'm going to work that hard to, to 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 deliver a lesson like that. That's like I have yet to see that that kind of level of like extraness and dedication in any other in any other subject. And so I think there really needs to be credit due to Chinese teachers who really really strive above and beyond to to plan out lessons, you know, whether or not you could say what we could have in our discussion on how, whether or not those lessons are effective, but they, you know, you can't say that they're not putting forth effort because these teachers, some of them really, really are. Um, but that being said, like, why do they care so much? Why are they going to put forth this much effort? Well, on the one hand, you could say that like teachers on the whole in Asia, you just in general go like are really, really extra and really, really go above and beyond, um, again debatable whether or not that above and beyond is headed is pointed in the right most practical direction um so there is that standard that exists but i think on the other hand especially when it comes to chinese school where like very few people are getting paid um, and and it's on a Saturday and, you know, there's no obligation to really do this apart from the fact that you must really, really care. And I think that's really what it is. Like Chinese parents and teachers really, really care about Chinese American kids learning Chinese. And that I think it's worth discussing, right? Why do Chinese parents care that their kids are able to speak Chinese so much? Um, why do Chinese parents care that their kids need to be like bilingual, which is a standard that no one puts on any other American kid. Um, and the easy answer is that like, you know, this is the very superficial answer is that like a Chinese parent might look at, um, some other kid next door some other kid at church or wherever um, and, and see that that's what all the other kids are doing and have their kid do it too which is like the same line that you use with like piano lessons or ice skating lessons or whatever it is that Asian kids are doing these days um, because there's definitely like this weird flex that like Asian parents have about admiring other people's kids Chinese abilities in particular um, like that whole thing where like you know you say like oh so and so's kid speaks Chinese so well why can't you um, yeah you could like literally go and apply that to literally every Everything that asian parents have kids do for like quote-unquote mandatory fun extracurriculars um but i think for like language in particular because it feels like such a given right um and there's definitely this like you know to put it bluntly this this shaming component where it's like so-and-so's kids can speak chinese so well and you should be able to do that too because you're chinese why can't you do that um so there's that. But I think also the bigger, perhaps more noble reason is uh, some parents or a lot of parents want their child to be able to communicate with family, um, particularly family in Asia where pe- where they might not speak English. And so, um, I mean, I'd imagine that if you're a Chinese parent and you're taking your Chinese American kids back to China, um, back to wherever your hometown is, and like you're there for a family dinner and you're introducing your kids and your kids are like basically can't make conversation with family members, can't, you know, connect with them because they can't speak Chinese well enough. I'm sure that if you're a parent looking at that, you're like, "Mm, I got to make sure that my kid can speak Chinese because this is awkward and embarrassing. Um, So there's that, obviously. But I would even bargain to say that, I don't know, maybe... Maybe it's a little hard to navigate the already difficult task of, like, raising and connecting with your own children when you don't speak the same native language as them. So what I'm pointing towards here is the idea that maybe it's not even just parents wanting their kids to connect with, like, aunts and uncles who don't speak English in China or whatever. um, But it's, like, parents who actually wish for their kids to be able to speak Chinese so they can connect with their parents better. Um, Now, obviously, a lot of, like, Chinese immigrant parents speak English uh, already. Maybe not fluently, but they can, you know, understand each other. But there's a difference between communicating with words and communicating with your heart, right? Like, this is something that I didn't really notice. This idea of, like, being able to connect with your parents in their native language or being able to share a native language with your parents really changes the nature of your relationship with them. Like, I didn't notice this until I started making, like... White friends, um, and going over to their houses from school, uh, because prior to that, all of my my only frame of reference was like my Asian friends from church, and so like my perception of a child parent relationship was very much defined by this language barrier. So I kind of took that for granted. But then like I started making friends who are not Asian from school, and then I'd go over to their house, and it was like so bizarre to see my friends talk to their parents. Like it, it wasn't like a disrespect thing. It was like man, like bantering like being able to banter with your parents, right? Or or it, it kind of sense it felt like weirdly transparent almost, right? Like the absence of that language barrier made the parent-child relationship feel very transparent, very vulnerable. Like you could see where having the lack of that barrier, um having the, the that closer Distance with each other um, can breed more conflicts between parent and child, but you can also see where you would be closer with each other, right? So it it stands to reason that, like, even within Asian immigrant households, and I think this is again stating the obvious, um, even within a parent child relationship, cultural differences between what you would think to be the closest personal relationship would still apply. And I don't think it's as if, like, Asian parents had this dream that they would, like, one day become, like, besties with their kids. Um, I don't think that's the goal. I don't think, like, they're. Asian parents are necessarily looking towards, like, America, so-called American families and American parent-child relationships and seeing that bantering, um, that sort of, like, equal relationship between parent and child um, and saying to themselves that that is what they want for their family as well, just because it just doesn't play nice with, like, um, you know, cultural values that, that Asian people tend to have about how parent and children relate to each other. Um, but I think you know, speaking as a person who is not a parent, I I imagine it, at the very least, it must be very difficult to raise children, period, with a language barrier in. place just because it's hard enough already to raise a child without one Um, and so Asian parents Chinese parents who see that language barrier as like a possible um, impediment in having a positive relationship with their child uh, might see Chinese school as a solution to get rid of that language barrier Um, and so if they get rid of that language barrier then it's kind of like well it makes sense that they would be able to relate with their child better, communicate with them better but I think what's important to note here is that um, getting rid of a language barrier does not necessarily get rid of a culture barrier which i think you know given anyone who is raised in an asian immigrant household probably sees that pretty pretty clearly um that if you're I mean you know it's pretty obvious right if you were if if two people were raised in two totally different cultural contexts um, their values will probably shift even if they are you know parent and child which is what we're talking about here Um, and so removing that language barrier right you know maybe even if a child becomes fluent in Chinese as a result of Chinese school even um, removing that language barrier language barrier affects not just communication but it also plays into uh, you know particularly when you're talking about children it plays into respect and that's kind of where the culture barrier thing comes into play because okay you know and and I say this particularly with kids um adults I think are a different matter because they are sensible and mature but kids as a whole are like super needy and have weirdly high standards for who they find acceptable this is not just like a a Chinese American kid versus their Asian parents thing this is just a general like kids anywhere in the world I feel kind of thing um kids in order to be in order for a child like in order for a preteen to find you acceptable um you have to like as an adult you have to like work to be like cool and relatable um for them to for for 12 year to be like mm, ah, yes this person is uh is is worthy of my respect and 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 i can take them seriously so kids as a as, as a general rule they're super needy and they have these high standards for the adults in their lives um before they can respect them which like that is not the right thing to do, right? Teach your kids to be respectful, but you know, like he keeps saying in this podcast, like this is our reality, right? You know, preteen kids tend to, you know, be picky in that sort of weird sort of way cuz they're just, you know, they're they're preteens, they're teenagers. So, if that's our reality, how do we deal with it? One thing that happens in Chinese classrooms in general is that the teacher, oftentimes a native speaking teacher, will try to teach and communicate only in the target language. Like they'll speak no English, which is actually a good thing to do, um, even from the outset, even with beginners. Um, but then what happens is that like the teachers up in the front talking in Chinese and then the students, despite whatever rules you say or what consequences you have for speaking English, the students will like just talk in English anyway. And the teacher, as a result, feels overpowered because it's like, you know, 15 to 20 English speaking kids versus one Chinese teacher at the front, like waving her hands wildly trying to communicate in Chinese. Um, And so, you know, you'll hear amongst native speaker Chinese teachers that they're, they often talk about being made fun of for their English. Um, And the thing about that comment is that it's, I don't think it's it's not just the English. It's not just that the kids are making fun of their English in particular. Um, it's the fact that like in a classroom like that, like when you have one teacher who's just trying their best to like um, speak in L2 all the time, speak in Chinese the whole time, um, whereas the kids just don't care and are just babbling on in English and even making fun of the teacher's English abilities. It's not just the fact that the teacher's English is, uh, is insufficient or as far as the kids are concerned. It's because like in that relationship, you see this inherent power imbalance where the teacher is like being othered in their own classroom right um and this is just like a sheer number sort of thing right like again you have like 15 to 20 kids who like you know are speaking English and have no regard for the rules and the teachers up there who doesn't have as good of a handle on English and they're trying to keep control of their classroom like yeah it sounds silly to be like a fully grown adult can be overpowered by a whole bunch of a whole bunch of preteens but that's that's exactly what's happening um Something that I really notice a lot about native Chinese teachers who are teaching to American kids is that um, and this is particularly prominent when the teacher is teaching in Chinese, but it also exists when the teacher is teaching in English. there is this like glass wall that that pops up between the teacher and the student um, and and this glass wall is really interesting because in some places in some ways the glass wall is being um is being held up by the teacher themselves perhaps because of you know um in asian schools generally speaking the teacher the way that a classroom works is that the teacher just lectures 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 the whole time um almost oblivious as to what the students are doing because they just assume that the students are listening um and so that glass wall might even be present in asian classrooms uh with asian kids but it doesn't matter because the 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 cultural climate of the classroom you know allows for that but at the same time with this like glass wall it's it can also be a, a thing that the students put up where um they are kind of grouped up on their own because they see the teacher as being so different from them for whatever you know wordless indescribable reasons i don't think that like a 12 year old can really accurately articulate why they won't respect a chinese speaking teacher with you know with subpar english um, but they definitely do sense something different about the teacher uh they sense a powerlessness because maybe you know a teacher in a classroom management issues or they can't speak English well but they detect this like lack of power and kids being kids they take advantage of that um and this is just like you know again this is only a reference to kids I really you will not find this in like a college classroom you might not even find this in a high school classroom but um with like again the the ideal the typical demographic of Chinese schools even with Chinese American kids right this is even just like a a snooty you know American student thing being disrespectful or racist to Chinese teachers. This is like, you know, English speakers overpowering uh, a teacher with limited English abilities. This is just straight up a maturity issue. And the only way I've seen teachers overcome this is when the teachers, regardless of language barrier, regardless of their language ability, um, get to know the kids outside of class, which is such a cliche. Um, But the thing is, in order to kind of overcome this glass wall um, and to earn to earn the, the the kids respect kids need to know that you as a teacher can level with them one thing that's really important i feel and i feel like a lot of chinese teachers know this already um but one thing that's really important to remember that is that you know western kids don't succumb by authority of the teacher's position alone like kids don't look at a teacher and say ah they're the teacher i should you know respect them automatically um i mean you know not to say that they shouldn't do that but like you know most kids don't do that um and so the teacher must then earn the respect of the of the students which again like sounds like total sacrilege and i think you know maybe me saying that is a little unfair to to american western kids because there are you know it's not as if western kids don't understand the idea of respect but again there is this in a practical sense there is this sense that like as a teacher you kind of do have to earn the respect of your students in order to get anywhere and it's not as if like you have to like kowtow to them or like you know you know give in to whatever they want it's not being a pushover but it it has to do with like the kids getting to know you as a person and knowing that they can, that you can level with them, that you are someone that they can trust. I think that's kind of what it is. Students need to be able to trust you before they can respect you. Um, and so again, like you know, do I agree that this sort of like you know teachers having to you know earn the respect of twelve year olds uh, in order to, in order for the twelve year olds to show them basic human decency? Do I agree that this is like a good thing or a right thing? Eh, no. In an ideal world, like you know, students should be respectful to all the adults in their lives. No question. Asked, but like you know, again, this is our reality, and if this is something that a Chinese teacher struggles with, which many do. It's easier sometimes to just play along with the pre existing rules and circumstances rather than trying to re establish the rules in a way that makes sense to you. But anyway, back to Chinese school. Yeah, so this isn't an episode where it's like Patricia explains Chinese school because, like most things in my life right now, I am also uniquely underqualified to roast Chinese school since I never actually attended one. Um, I do know a bunch of like Chinese school teachers and I obviously know people who went to Chinese school. And from that latter group, what's interesting is that there are like a good number of of people who like are fluent in Chinese or like at least pretty proficient in Chinese as a direct result of Chinese school so it's not as as much as we're like you know ragging on Chinese school for this for for this episode um, me and Andrew Yang uh, it's not as if Chinese schools are totally ineffective because obviously there are people who have been able to benefit from it um, in really tangible ways right you know on the one hand I I think that like Chinese schools will always be around for as long as Chinese people are invested in having their kids learn Chinese abroad Um, but there is a reason why Chinese schools are so ubiquitous and have existed for such a long time and I think it partially is riding on the the these these success stories um but at the same time, I think I'd also bargain to say that most of these success stories happened with kids that were already quite bright and were willing to, like, put up with Chinese school because they were just quick learners and that it was easy for them. Not necessarily because they were just, like, average kids who became so motivated to, like, comply with a teacher who was underqualified to learn a subject that they didn't want to learn. Um, you know, I, I think it's really hard to kind of expect that from any preteen, any 8 to 13-year-old. Um Yeah, I I honestly think that you really will only see that kind of work ethic from like you know, somewhat precocious non-Chinese kids who have like a self-motivated intrinsic desire to learn Chinese. Um, and and obviously you will, you know, you won't see the same attitude with like Asian American adults um, who are learning Chinese because they too have that self-motivation. But to be honest, I really don't know too many Chinese American kids who are like, you know, average intellect, um, not super, super bright, um, you know, but also just really, really, really want to learn Chinese, like are willing to look past, like the chaos of the Chinese school classroom to like learn something that is so difficult on a Saturday um, or a Sunday. Um and and so the point here is that when it comes to like chinese american kids who are like you know eight to 13 years old it's really hard in general to coerce any preteen to do anything but like coercing them to learn chinese right by taking extra classes on the weekend uh in a classroom setting that like tends to not just be unengaging but and also like traditional and like taught by a teacher who is like clearly under equipped but is also like super chaotic because no one wants to be there and everyone is bored right like just think about that do you as an adult want to go through that and the answer to that is likely uh duh no but we're adults we have the choice to not do things that we don't want to do and kids shouldn't necessarily have that choice because kids don't know what's good for them. Which is kind of fair because kids generally don't have a great handle on like long-term results. Um, they don't understand the immense benefit of learning something that requires great sacrifice and pain and suffering um, for for them right now because the end result will pay off like way, 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 way in the future. Like kids just don't have that like long-term prospectus on things. And so if you remember like episode one of this podcast where we talked about Lenora Chu, who's this Chinese-American writer who sent her child to like a, a preschool or kindergarten in China um, and her kid uh, at one point in the book like really hates eating eggs and Lenora says that she tried to convince him by like you know touting the benefits of eating eggs and the Chinese teacher at this kindergarten was like no nah, we're just going to force him force feed him eggs instead because obviously your reasoning with him is not working it's kind of the same logic right Chinese people I feel have discovered a long time ago that you cannot reason with children like you can't like you know try to logicize the benefits of doing xyz so instead you know what what is your other option do you either give or you force them to do it. You force them to do it because you know you have this underlying principle that like you know kids aren't going to listen to reason anyway and so you might as well just achieve the same results by making them do it. But the question is, did it work? Is it working? Well, it didn't for Andrew Yang and it didn't for like all the other Asian American kids like him and so it feels really unfair to criticize or like just kind of put down Chinese school as a whole because again right you know in a Chinese school environment there's just so many things working against the favor of the teachers and the school who like deep down all they really want is to see Chinese American children succeed in speaking Chinese right I mean there's room to critique perhaps like the overvaluation of children who can speak Chinese versus children who can't. Um, you know, you hear this all the time with like parents who like constantly compare their kids' ability to speak Chinese and there's a certain kind of like shame associated with that that isn't present in like all the other like piano, violin, math club, all the other things that like Chinese parents compare their kids to. Um, as well as like, you know, there's room to critique as well of Chinese people's fundamental misunderstanding of what it actually means to be Chinese American um, and that being Chinese American really doesn't have much or shouldn't have much to do with, quote unquote, preserving one's culture. Uh, that's a topic that I think we might, you know, save for another episode. But I think one thing that one final thing that I think really, really does work against the teachers and the school's favor that I didn't mention yet um, is the expectation of the parents of the students, the Chinese parents of the Chinese American students as for me and my like you know day job i'm actually super thankful that at my school i don't teach really any heritage speakers um almost all my kids are just like you know they speak english at home um usually not chinese um because the thing is the scariest thing um in my opinion as like a non-native chinese Speaking teacher is reckoning your abilities to teach Chinese with an actual native speaker Chinese parent. Um, Yeah, especially for someone like me, where like you know for a fact that like if you're teaching a heritage speaker, their parents Chinese is definitely better than yours, and you don't know if they're gonna use that as leverage to criticize you um, or put pressure on you unfairly. What's funny is that like I at one point actually almost got a job, like a side job, working at a Chinese school. Um, Yeah supplementing teacher pay um i was told and i was like highly recommended that i like apply for this because um apparently and i heard this from multiple people uh this school in particular was looking for teachers who were like me who could like quote unquote connect with the kids right um actually like you know was added to their wechat group and just from the outset like a lot of the stuff on the wechat group was not necessarily about like teaching like chinese teaching pedagogy it was all like classroom management issues so that clearly was like the thing that they were most concerned about was classroom management and so i was constantly told that like they chinese schools needed quote-unquote teachers like me who could like manage kids better because I don't know. I speak. I speak English. Like you know, whatever. I don't know why they had never seen me teach before. But for some reason, they had this assumption. So I, I like you know, stepped into the application process with that in mind. I'm like you know, I could use the supplemental income. Um But once I started digging around on like this Chinese school's website, I was like. Uh, it also says on your website that the first requirement for your teachers is that they have to be native Chinese speakers, like that particular verbiage, uh, which seems to me to also say like you know not you, um, uh, like as if it seems like as if like they were really prioritizing you know for their teachers like you know if you're a, a Chinese teacher like being a native speaker is very very important. Right. Which I think maybe you could make a case for. Um, But as far as I was concerned, I saw that and I was just like, I feel like they put this on the requirements because they probably have run into people who are like me, you know, not to say that my Chinese is bad, but you know, I feel like maybe they have like such high standards that they would see someone like me and they wouldn't think that I would measure up to them. Um, you know, like I have all these like fun teacher tricks on how to manage a classroom, um but like if I don't meet this most basic requirement of like being a native Chinese speaker, maybe that disqualifies me immediately. Um, but I actually ended up backing out from this not because of that particularly, but as I was reading over all the materials and contracts and like the handbook and whatever, um there in addition to this like native speaker thing there was so much like implied emphasis on like deference to the parents i won't even say like you know working together partnering with parents but it seemed like there was this implied emphasis that like the teachers were kind of like had to defer to the parents constantly right that that the parents had so much say over what happened at the school that um you know i mean they would say straight out that the school was like run and established by parents um and so what that said to me was that like whatever happens in the classroom, right, the the school exists to serve the parents' expectations. Um, I don't remember the details of the exact stipulations that I saw that really caused me to just, like, call it quits before I even started, but I know distinctly from that experience that I was, like, very, very, very not confident that my teaching methods and the speed at which I taught would be seen as, like, sufficient for these Chinese parents, right? Um, That they would see the way that I taught as being, like, not fast enough or that the kids weren't learning as much as they should. Um, And they would, you know, in all likelihood, probably like pin that back to the fact that I wasn't a native speaker or some excuse like that. Um, Because I think with Chinese school, there is this, they have like the certain expectation to like, which is like, like keeping up with standards or keeping up with like curve that is like, you know, almost purposely ambiguously defined. And, and so I had a real problem with that just because, you know, it wasn't necessarily a matter of like how they had those standards. Because I think like, you know, if you have if you're used to having kids, if you have the expectation that you can push kids at that level and you've succeeded. Right. You know, by all means. Right. That's that's fine. And, and those success stories, again, speak for themselves. But that's just not um, that's just not what I believe has worked for in my experience. Um, and I would have a really hard time kind of, you know, changing over to something back to something that I in my experience, having used that in my classroom did not work quite as well and this is mostly because in my classroom I focus a lot more on input rather than output Uh, if you guys are familiar with like language acquisition teaching stuff this is known as comprehensible input ci Um, and the idea to summarize like ci is kind of like you have like a glass right and so you like pour water into the glass you pour so much water in it that like the glass eventually overflows so the idea is that like you know when a student is learning a new language uh the thing that they need the most is hearing and seeing a bunch of the L2, a bunch of that language, just seeing a whole bunch of that, they can understand, like that's super important that it's comprehensible to them. So so it's just all input, 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 input. And then once they have sufficient input, then the output will naturally occur. And the reason for this is because like people can't actually output stuff, like whether it's like speaking or writing, uh, without having seen enough examples, right? And if they try to do the speaking and writing thing after seeing an insufficient amount of examples and input, like they only see, like the classic example is like, you have a textbook and then you have like, a page worth of like dialogues and then right away you go to the workbook and like you know complete the sentence do these rejoinders or whatever right um you know if they try to you know have you know produce output after seeing an insufficient amount of examples or input um, what they say or write will either be a wrong or b it'll be right but they won't be sure of themselves um and so the idea, the reason why this CI stuff is like what I found to be super useful, particularly with like middle school, high school kids, um, you know, especially with younger kids, it's having that confidence that they are quote unquote not wrong before opening their mouths is so key right like you know I mean again like those of you who are adult language learners you probably will be like ah that's so silly because part of learning a language is about making mistakes and not being afraid to be corrected yeah that's great because we're adults because we have that emotional maturity but like kids in general um they are really really afraid of being wrong and so you know when you only give them like one or two examples and then expect them to like make you know 造詞, or like you know give use the word in the sentence they are overwhelmed by this fear of being wrong and so I found like this comprehensible input methodology to be much more effective when it comes to teaching like, you know, teenagers or preteens. Um, just because it really plays well with that kind of, like, you know, learner anxiety that they have that adult learners don't have. Um, But as a result, there's not a ton of, like, visible evidence that you see, at least in the early stages, via, like, output that kids are, quote-unquote, improving their Chinese, right? They're not writing essays. They're not speaking as much. And so it's easy to look at that um, and to be like, you know, what are these kids even learning in the first place? And on top of that, I forgot to mention, I, as a general rule, just really don't care about handwriting nearly as much as, like, traditional native-speaking Chinese teachers do. Like, I'll spend another episode talking about why I care so little about writing Chinese by hand and why I think traditional Chinese teachers should care less as well. Um, But it oftentimes uh, seems as if, like, Chinese parents send their kid to Chinese school under the pretense that like you know my kid is fluent in Chinese already and all they have to do is like all they have to do is like you know make up, patch up things um in terms of their speaking and handwriting characters and reading um you know it's, it's as if like the parent themselves have already diagnosed the gaps in their child's understanding or knowledge of Chinese and it's just the Chinese teacher's job to fill those gaps. But there's a fundamental error in that, and it's that, like, you know, what heritage speaker students are actually missing is actually so much more than just, like, those gaps of, like, being able to speak better or to, like, uh, write characters or to read characters. Like, on top of that, they're missing vocabulary. They're missing, like, more complex grammar structures that allows them to say longer sentences than, like, 不要打我. Um, They're missing the ability or, like, haven't established the habit of circumlocution. Um as well as confidence, right? Confidence is a huge, huge piece of this. So like if you only reduce a heritage speaking child's abilities to just like, oh, they're fluent in Chinese and they only have to learn how to write characters and read characters and like, you know, learn to speak a little better. It's not just that, right? They're missing a lot more and you know, it's if you tell if you if you come in with the expectation that like you know a child is really good in Chinese already and they should be confident in it, but when in reality they're actually missing a lot more, then it shouldn't surprise you when the child is not as confident as they say that they are. That they, they are like hesitant to to speak Chinese or even go to Chinese school and 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 learn Chinese there because they're missing a lot more than the parent thinks that they are. They even think they are confidence when teaching kids is a huge 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 piece. And so comprehensible input as a method. Um, you know, the way that I teach has a way of building that confidence. But it also means that we teach a lot more slowly, right? Output happens a lot later down the line, like months, perhaps even like a year, and it's hard to see results right away. And again, this is something that's hard to accept when you're coming from a perspective that students are to are going to a Chinese school to zhongwen, not like not to learn it from scratch, but to like just patch up holes. Um, but the thing is, heritage speakers, despite this like in, you know inherent advantage they have in terms of grammar, and that's really about it. And on top of that, right? As I was also like reviewing whether or not I should pursue uh, applying to this position, you know, I kind of also knew in like my Chinese gut that, you know, when Chinese Chinese parents are looking at who's teaching their kid, whether that be in school or in Chinese school or whatever, um, they are first and foremost looking at their teacher's, like, credentials, right? You know, they're they're, they're looking for their teacher's credentials to wow them, and, you know, I don't know. I I don't know if my background of, you know, scrapping my Chinese together as an adult uh, in college rather than spending my college years becoming, like, I don't know, becoming a doctor (laughs) um, or something useful is something that most Chinese parents would necessarily be impressed at, right? Um, Yeah, there's just a whole bunch of these, like, invisible pressures. Maybe, Maybe I'm not giving Chinese parents enough credit. Like, I haven't met every Chinese parent in the world, but, like, you know, just some and Speaking from personal experience, I just didn't feel like, you know, I would be able to earn many Chinese parents' trust from um, them looking at my educational pedigree alone. But anyway, I just think it's kind of cute that there's this experience of like collective suffering amongst this certain generation of like millennial Gen X Asian-Americans. Um, I was just thinking about how we're seeing these things materialize now, like the result of like the uh, Chinese school and the piano lessons and the ballet lessons or like any other like requisite, you know, Asian-American extracurricular activity, how we're now seeing the re- end result of that now that all these Asian-American millennials, Gen Xers are now becoming adults, right? You know, it's this idea that like, We spent all this time in our childhood practicing classical instruments, but, like, how many of us are still, like, playing piano or violin at that same level now, right? You know, I feel like there's this demographic of uh, kids from fairly financially stable Asian immigrant parents who had the means to use their money to do nothing else but to invest in our distant, distant, distant futures through Chinese school, after school tutoring, math camp, whatever. Um, And so we're finally seeing the results of it now that we're adults. And it's like such a mixed bag, right? Um, but to zero in on Chinese school specifically, right? I don't know. I think Chinese school gets an undeserved bad rap. Um, this isn't to say that I think that Chinese school is all around effective because I think to be honest, the results really are more than enough to speak for themselves. You know, if Andrew Yang is going on the internet and talking about how like Chinese school was like, you know, totally useless to him, carte blanche, like, you know, I think that, you know, uh, rough, you know, um, But I think the reason why Chinese school has a hard time succeeding is really because it's battling very, very difficult odds. Like, once again, it's on a weekend. Kids don't want to be there. Kids are at the worst possible age to be dealing with. There's, like, way too many of them in one classroom. The language is hard. There's no accountability. Like, the teachers aren't trained or experienced enough. Like, all this stuff, right? It's just such a losing battle. It's so hard. Um, But these odds, I think, at the same time, are not necessarily unsurmountable, right? Um, Not that I have the solution to it, but I don't think that Chinese school ought to be a total lost cause. Just because I, I don't know, as an ethnically Chinese person, um, you know, growing up in the US, I will always believe that there is a way to compel Chinese American kids to want to learn Chinese and feel good about it, right? You know, but at the same time, I think there are things that happen within the structure of Chinese school that really actively prevent that from happening, And a lot of it boils down to this idea that I mentioned earlier that like you know kids you know Chinese people believe that kids don't know what's good for them so their role as kids is just sit down and shut up while the adults in their lives tell them what they should do and the kids should just obey right Um, you know perhaps that works in you know in Asia you know I am not entirely sure that it does but like you know at the very least American kids don't function like that including Chinese American kids right Um, and when Chinese when Chinese American kids don't function within those those expectations uh Chinese adults and parents just straight up call that disrespect which is like fair because being respectful definitely doesn't mean that like when you hear a bad idea that you act out in Chinese school but I think uh people need to let go of the idea that children are helpless agents in their own growth and education I mean, it's not to say that kids ought to have, like, total free reign over what they learn and how they spend their time. Because, like, given the choice, most kids would probably choose to, like, do nothing with their time, do nothing productive with their time. Like, this isn't an insult on kids. Uh, this is honestly, like, what most of us probably dreamed about at that age, right? Let's be real. Um, but to boil it into very, very simple terms, Right. Um, in terms of shaping a kid's future, in terms of like making investments in how a kid is going to succeed, it, because again, like, you know, the reason why we impress so many things on a kid's life at such a young age is because when you're young, you have the capability to learn so many things and you have someone, you have your parents who are willing to pour money into that, right? Like that is such an ideal, precious you know, a time in your life. Um, it's such a valuable time in your life for you to invest in your future. Um, and so it makes sense to really use that to, for parents to really use that to the child's best advantage instead of letting them squander it on like video games or whatever. Um, but again, to boil it into very, very simple terms, if you're going to do that, right? If you're going to actively make these investments in your child's life that the child might not have like made that choice in the first place on their own, um, whatever those decisions are, the kid needs to be, on board with any decisions that are being made about what they learn and how they spend their time, right? This doesn't mean that the kid is making the decisions, but they need to be on board. Um, And I think we'll explore the details of that theme more at a later date, but I think I'll just leave that there for now. All right, and that wraps another episode of this podcast. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already on wherever it is you listen to podcasts. By the way, uh, these episodes are also posted to YouTube and SoundCloud. So if you prefer to listen to your podcast over there, you can do that over there um share this with your friends if this is something you found relatable or useful or interesting or fun or whatever and once again it's really helpful for me if you left us a review to tell us what you liked and give us a five stars if you haven't already you can follow us on social media um we are at bad chinese teacher on instagram bad chinese pod on twitter bad chinese teacher podcast on facebook and we will have new episodes every monday if you're looking for me you can also find me on social media i am at patricia lu on instagram at patricia sq lu on twitter and as always you can find my writing at blog.patricialu.net so um with that thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time Bye bye